0: Hi everyone, start off the new year right by signing up for our online mailing list to receive updates on newly released podcasts. Go to our website at www.insocialwork.org and click on the envelope icon near the center right of the page and just above our most recent episode. You will be taken to a new page where you can sign up to stay in touch with In Social Work. I'm Peter Sabota. Relationship has often been referred to as the container or the vessel for most of what happens in direct social work practice. In this episode, our guest Dr. Kelly Canada discusses the impact of relationship between caseworkers and their clients as they participate in mental health courts. Dr. Canada begins by describing the distinguishing features of mental health clinics versus traditional courts. She goes on to discuss her study of the role of the bonding or conflict perceived in these relationships on outcomes for this population. Kelly Canada, Ph.D. LCSW, is assistant professor at the University of Missouri School of Social Work. Her research focuses on the treatment of serious mental illnesses and chronic health conditions in adults and older adults in the criminal justice system. She's also interested in the processes that can be utilized to improve the quality of life of populations facing disproportionate risk when mental health and the criminal justice system interact. Dr. Canada was interviewed by her own Charles Sims, LCSW, associate professor at the UB School of Social Work, and the taller of the two hosts of the In Social Work podcast series. This interview was recorded in June 2013.
1: This is Charles Sims, and I'm talking with Dr. Kelly Canada, and she's done some work on mental health courts. Kelly, can you tell us a little bit about what a mental health court is and how and why did they come about?
2: Sure. So mental health courts are essentially an alternative to the traditional way that courts process criminal activity. So mental health courts specifically connect people with mental illnesses to mental health and substance abuse treatment and social services rather than sentencing people to spend time in prison. So we actually see quite a bit of variation in the mental health court models by judicial circuit, particularly in their target populations, the referral process, plea arrangements, the way that the mental health court team supervises individuals, and obviously the availability and the type of treatments, which does vary quite a bit from place to place. Mental health courts, though, are presumed to kind of tailor their programs to meet the local needs of the communities, but we do have kind of common components that distinguish mental health courts from traditional courts. So I can tell you a little bit about those components. Mental health courts have a specialized docket for people with mental illnesses, so it's a completely separate docket that only has this group of individuals in it. It is a voluntary program, so even if someone is eligible for the mental health court, they have to decide that they want to participate in the program. Individuals are, like I said, diverted from going through trial and possible incarceration to receiving monitored community-based treatment, and that is a condition of program participation. While individuals are in the program, uh, they are supervised. It's a very intensive supervision process with regular status meetings before the judge. So it's a formal court hearing, and that can be up to once per week where individuals are required to talk to the judge directly rather than through a lawyer like in a traditional court. And then finally, uh, mental health court programs, which is quite different than traditional court, they utilize a number of rewards and sanctions to encourage compliance with court mandates and with treatment.
1: So I know that you've said that jurisdictionally they may look a little differently, but what kinds of rewards and sanctions did you or did your group or did your work find?
2: Well, so for the rewards, you know, individuals, I mean, they really varied quite a bit. The most kind of common reward would be the judge giving praise to individuals who are doing well in the program. Maybe the court team and other participants would clap for the individual. People actually had a lot of interesting and creative ways that they provided rewards. So they may have like candy bars or treats all the way through baseball tickets. So actual activities that people could engage in. Obviously, the ultimate reward is graduation, but there are a number of variations on the rewards kind of in between. Sanctions, again, the worst sanction that an individual could get would be spending time in jail. So individuals may have to spend a night in jail or a weekend, but most of the time sanctions would include maybe reporting more frequently to a probation officer or having To stay so all of the mental health court participants have to come to the court hearings together and a sanction might be having to go last so spending kind of the longest time in a status hearing that you possibly could
1: okay can you say a little bit about what kinds of crimes did these individuals or do individuals commit in order to find their way into mental health courts I'm sure some people worry about well are violent offenders Referred to mental health court or, so what was your finding? Mm-hmm.
2: That. Well, you know, that is actually one point that varies quite a bit. When mental health courts were first established, we saw a lot of courts that primarily only took individuals with misdemeanor crimes. So that would be more of kind of the, the crimes that you might think of that when we talk about the criminalization hypothesis or individuals with mental illnesses being picked up for more petty crimes, maybe trespassing or retail theft, things that typically don't involve victims but would require incarceration if there was a number of misdemeanors that kind of accumulated over time. What we found though is that people with misdemeanors often would spend longer in the mental health court than they would if they were just processed normally through the court. So these second generation of mental health courts that we've seen are taking more felony charges. So the courts that I actually studied, uh, one only accepted felony charges and the other accepted felony primarily, but also did take some misdemeanor crimes. And most programs, don't take individuals who have particularly violent crimes that they were currently charged with or or in their history, although that did vary somewhat. It was sometimes a case-by-case situation, and at times when there were victims involved in the crime, the courts would have to get permission from the victims to allow an individual to be invited to be in the, the mental health court.
1: I see. Uh, the time differential, as you spoke about earlier, is something that they're seeing also in drug courts where individuals are making clear decisions about whether or not they want to go into court because they could spend more time in drug treatment court instead of going to incarceration, so they've made that kind of decision. You've talked a lot about some of the work that you've done. I was wondering if you could talk to us a little bit more about your study and some of the things that you found in your study.
2: Sure. Well, one thing that we know from the mental health court literature that we have right now is that at least for the people that decide to participate in the mental health courts, there have been some positive outcomes that have been noted. So primarily, we see studies showing a reduction in recidivism. So they may look at individuals' arrest record prior to mental health court participation and after, and we do see a reduction for those individuals who have participated in mental health court. We've also seen an increase in access to mental health and social services, and a reduction in the use of more crisis-related services. We don't really know a lot about what happens within the mental health court, what it's like to be in the mental health court, and most importantly, what factors might be important in reducing some of the criminal recidivism that we see. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I'm really interested in treatment and how practitioners working within a criminal justice environment deliver services. So I wanted to investigate a little bit more about what role case workers play in mental health courts. And in the research that we have right now, I mean, there is some speculation that relationships within the mental health court team do matter, but we're primarily seeing research that was conducted with the judge. So... I look to the Therapeutic Alliance literature, which is just such a rich history of research that supports the importance of the role that relationships can play, particularly with treatment providers. You know, the Therapeutic Alliance in particular has been a robust predictor of clinical outcomes among people with mental illnesses and substance use disorders. So what we did is we used the definition of the alliance that came from Borden's work, which is really a pan-theoretical conceptualization of what I call the working relationship, which is really the the tasks and the goals and the bonds that caseworkers can create with their clients, and it suggests that individual level change would occur as a result of that ongoing collaboration, the formation of a really strong relationship, and client-provider partnerships kind of throughout their work together. So what would be predicted is that having a strong relationship with one's caseworker would predict positive outcomes among individuals with mental illnesses. We've seen with work that it's improved GAF scores, so global assessment of functioning, reduced symptom severity. It's also increased treatment participation and treatment adherence and even contributed to sobriety. I think that what is interesting about mental health courts, though, is that our Therapeutic Alliance literature is really for providers that are only in one setting, so they're only in that treatment provider setting, and we don't really know what happens when we take providers and we put them in a criminal justice environment. So that is what we wanted to study in this project. We do know that mental health caseworkers kind of play a pivotal role in the mental health court. So for people that aren't familiar, they are uh, one member of the mental health court team. That's one thing that does vary from court to court. In the courts that I studied, in one court, the mental health court caseworkers were in a central location. So it was uh, one treatment provider for all the mental health court participants the caseworkers were a member of the team, and they provided direct services, all the direct services that individuals would need. So therapeutic intervention to brokering, linking individuals with benefits and coordinating different services for them. The other mental health court I studied, caseworkers were also an integral part of the mental health court team, but the actual direct services that were provided to them were coordinated with community providers so those caseworkers although they did provide some direct services they did much more coordinating of services and kind of acting as a liaison between community providers and the court so what we did is we sampled from the two courts we collected information from 80 active mental health court participants And what we wanted to see is if that uh, perceived bond or uh, perceptions of conflict with mental health court caseworkers impacted outcomes. So, we collected information over six months for a number of days that individuals spent in jail the number of social services that individuals use, which include mental health services, substance use treatment, and other related social services, and then also at the end of the six-month follow-up period, if individuals had retained in the program or not.
1: Okay. And what did you find with that?
2: So we expected that the bond that individuals perceived with their caseworkers would matter quite a bit. And we were a little bit surprised with with what actually was found. So the bond did matter. The bond had a positive relationship with uh, service use in particular. We used regression analysis. So there was a number of variables that we controlled for. So symptom severity, individual's attitudes towards psychiatric medications uh, were controlled in analyses. And the bond, as perceptions of the bond increased, we also saw an increase in the services used in that follow-up period. But the bond wasn't significantly associated with the number of days spent in jail or program retention. The surprising result really was that perceptions of conflict with caseworkers mattered quite a bit for all three outcomes that we studied. So we found that as perceptions of conflict with caseworkers increased, number of social service use decreased in the follow-up. We saw that as conflict increased with caseworkers, we also saw that the number of days spent in jail increased in the follow-up. And then we saw among people who graduated from the program or remained active in the program reported less conflict with their caseworkers in comparison to the individuals who were terminated unsuccessfully or who went missing during that follow-up period. And. People are wondering, well, how could someone go missing? There's actually a group of individuals that the mental health court team just couldn't find. So these are people that are living in the community so they can leave. And we did find that during those initial interviews, reported conflict with caseworkers was significantly higher with that group than graduates and people who remained active.
1: Oh, very interesting. Did you look primarily at caseworkers or were you able to look at other members of the team?
2: Actually in a post hoc analysis, after we did this analysis, we were curious. It was the same thing going on with probation officers. And we had a measure that we used that assessed for perceptions of conflict with probation officers. And there were no significant associations whatsoever with perceptions of conflict with caseworkers and these same three outcomes. And so, you know, we did a lot of thinking, like why would this happen? If these are probation officers and caseworkers, they're a part of the same team, why would perceptions of conflict with caseworkers matter more. And this is speculation that we had after the study, but we wondered, perhaps this is because conflict with probation officers is expected. They're a part of the criminal justice system, but caseworkers are a part of the treatment community. And if individuals can experience lower conflict with mental health caseworkers, that relationship may be much more positive in light of the fact that these caseworkers are operating within a criminal justice program.
1: Okay. You've talked about caseworkers, and I'm wondering, were these caseworkers professional social workers? I guess I'm thinking about the idea of relationship and what we try to teach in social work education about the importance of relationship. So I was curious about uh, their background as much as you know.
2: Yeah, so the caseworkers actually it varied quite a bit from court to court. So some caseworkers were BSWs. Other caseworkers were master's level counselors that didn't have a background in social work. In one court, we saw BSWs, in the other court, we actually saw MSWs and LCSWs that were providing services. The court that I had talked about where there was one treatment team that all mental health court participants were kind of channeled through, they had caseworkers that really have less traditional casework roles. So they were really providing much more of a therapeutic intervention than just kind of your typical casework services.
1: Well, so that varied greatly then when you talk about how services are provided. I see. I'm also wondering as you kind of gone through the work here and you've kind of looked at this. What do you think are the potential implications of your work, particularly given the variations between casework or social work intervention or how that might inform practice going forward? It seems that more of these courts have been springing up or more variants of these courts have been springing up. So I'm wondering if you've had a chance to think about that as well as future places for your research.
2: Well, you know, I think this is a really exciting area to be researching right now because we really are seeing such an increase in these specialty courts. And I think there's a great need for social work to be a part of these programs, really to ensure that individuals are receiving good therapeutic care, but also kind of paying attention to the rights of individuals who are in these programs. The problem is is that we really don't know a lot about the variations of caseworkers across mental health courts. I mean, what we primarily see are reports on the processes and the policies within individual mental health courts. And that therapeutic side, in my opinion, is really lacking from what we know right now. So we need to gather a lot more information about what casework roles look like, what roles practitioners are playing within the mental health courts, and have more of a descriptive picture of what that looks like. I mean, what we know is that conflict, anyone that's practiced in this field of social work knows that conflict is really inevitable when we have these therapeutic relationships with individuals, especially over the long term. And so I think that as we move forward, specific interventions for social work practice would really be to help providers address this conflict as it arises by exploring the nature and the meaning of conflict with clients. And I think even more important than that is helping social workers who are working within criminal justice settings particularly like these specialty courts, is helping them develop tools that can very clearly lay out the boundaries of their work with clients. So telling clients, I'm required to report this information, this information is confidential between the two of us, and you know, really helping to preserve that important piece of the therapeutic relationship that we know it works from previous research and how we can preserve that within this criminal justice context.
1: Yeah, I can see how social workers or caseworkers might be pulled in two different directions with the idea that you have a relationship with the court that you have to maintain and that that's important, but you also have a relationship with clients, so how do we help individuals learn to manage that tension?
2: Yeah, and it's there. I didn't talk about it in this particular analysis. That we talked about, but I did interview staff from the mental health courts and community treatment providers and from administrators. There's an expectation that the team has no secrets. Kind of any information that's shared with mental health court participants is up for grabs from the team. And caseworkers and practitioners had a very different story. You know, they said there's this constant tension of how little can I tell but still report to the judge when I'm asked? How can I help my client? use this therapeutic process when they know that I'm part of that team and I sit at that table and I report things.
1: Yeah, I absolutely understand and can agree with that. This discussion kind of brings me to another one as I think about it, and that is, I know that there's been some discussion in social work circles about, you know, what are the ethical implications of being part of these mandated or coercive teams of individuals who are working with folks with mental health disorders. and. I'm wondering if you've had a chance to think about this idea of social workers being part of this mandated process or coercive process. If you thought about what is the role of client self determination in this process, do you know, do they give that up and what does that mean for social workers who may be working?
2: Well, as I just mentioned, I did do some interviews with staff and I think that it can be challenging for people to know how to work within this team context. For example, I think that working within the constraints of the criminal justice system, that practitioners try their best to involve the mental health court clients in treatment planning. And that actually treatment planning process and inclusion of participants actually varied quite a bit from the two courts I studied. There was a kind of one-size-fits-all prescription to treatment in one court and a much more individualized approach in another one. And I think that that one-size-fits-all model was a trickle-down effect of the service restraints that we see in that community. I mean, there was only a number of beds at a number of facilities that were kind of being reserved for mental health court participants. And if one was open, you had to go there, you know, even if you'd been there before and it didn't work for you or it was in a neighborhood that triggers of substance use in your past. I mean, that didn't matter as much, and I know that at least among the people that I talked with, the staff, that that was really hard because they felt that they were working with very few options and not always being able to address the client's needs in the way that they needed, you know, to have their needs met. So I think that there are a number of constraints. I do think that one thing from the people that I talked to in my study is really that balance that we already briefly talked about with confidentiality with clients and really knowing that if certain information is disclosed, individuals, mental health court participants can essentially be violated. There are significant ramifications for disclosure to the team. Individuals can go to jail they can have their time in the mental health court program extended and some of those decisions are really solely on the discretion of the provider.
1: Wow. So I'm guessing as long as social workers are going to work in these environments that we're going to continue to see these kinds of struggles from a professional standpoint of you know, where does your allegiance lie and how do I resolve these kind of dilemmas? in professional practice. I have one more question for you and then I will give you an opportunity to add anything that you would like to that you think we might have missed. And you alluded to this earlier on that you are a licensed clinical social worker, so I guess there's a piece of me that's wondering, how did you come to this work? How did you come to working being interested in looking at mental health courts?
2: Well, prior to getting my PhD, I worked in psychiatric rehab. And a portion of my clients had been come into contact with the criminal justice system. Some were on probation, so I worked with probation officers. Some of us that work in mental health, it's like if you've got a long history in psychiatric rehabilitation, somehow you end up in the criminal justice system, you know because we really see such an enormous percentage of individuals in the criminal justice system with mental illness. And I mean, over the last 20 years or so, it's been a pretty consistent estimated 15% of people in jails and prisons have a serious mental illness, not just a mental illness, but one of the the more serious mental illnesses like bipolar, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder. So it maybe was inevitable for me to kind of get involved in criminal justice research. But when I started developing my research interests, the idea that So little research on mental health courts involves the perceptions of mental health court participants was, as a clinical social worker, just shocking to me. I I wanted to know from the people that participated in these programs what it was like for them and what does it do day to day. People are not going into the mental health courts because they are required by law to take treatment, to take medications. That's not the case. Mental health court participants have committed a crime or have been charged with a crime and they're being sentenced. And so that was an ethical consideration that I wondered how it looked in practice, what it felt like for individuals to voluntarily go into these programs, but you know, with the alternative being prison, I wondered what it was like for people to make the decisions to be in these programs and what it was like day to day to be in them.
1: So I'm wondering if your plan is to continue this line of research because I think it has potentials of being very important in the social work because I do see these courses continuing to expand and become more a part of the landscape and I think social work has a role to play in there. The question is, how do we manage that professionally?
2: I think that this is, as I've probably mentioned multiple times, (laughs) such an exciting area for research. If you think about the multiple roles that social workers could play, I mean, they can play caseworkers. They can be the treatment providers in the community that are coordinating with mental health courts. They can be the lawyers, JDMSWs, working within mental health courts. And they can even be probation officers. One of the probation officers in my study was an LCSW. So she actually provided billable Medicaid hours, like billable services for her therapeutic interventions with her clients. And I think there is so much we don't know about what that looks like. There are so many interesting directions to go. So I think I have a whole career in uh, (laughs) in research in this area.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. Before I let you go, is there anything that we might have missed that you would like to the highlight or to draw attention to?
2: You know, I'm an advocate myself in my work and in my practice and, and I just would want to encourage social workers in general to not shy away from the criminal justice system because We have so many people that don't, quote unquote, deserve to be in the criminal justice system. And and there's so many opportunities for people who end up in the criminal justice system to have good services to try to help them stay out of the criminal justice system. For people with mental illnesses, we know they are at an extraordinarily higher risk of recidivism than the general population. I mean, we just see these chronic revolving doors. And I always feel as a social worker that it's my duty. If I see injustice, I want to try to tackle it. And I teach direct practice with new social workers, and so many people seem intimidated by the criminal justice system. And I just, I hope that social work can really make a push forward to make a difference for people to end up there.
1: Well, I agree. I think it's a fascinating area of study as well as work, and I hope that as you progress in your career and more particularly in your research that we have an opportunity to bring you back to talk about some more things that you've learned and help us think about how to incorporate into professional social work.
2: Yeah, great. I would love to. Thanks for being interested in this and letting me talk about my work. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for your time once again.
2: Okay. Thank you so much.
0: You have been listening to Dr. Kelly Canada discuss the role of caseworker and client relationships within mental health courts on In Social Work.
1: Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We look forward to your continued support of the series. For more information about who we are as a school, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu.